You are listening to Space Time Mind, a podcast by two philosophy professors, Richard Brown and Pete Mandick, who talk about philosophy, science, and all sorts of other stuff. Please be advised that this podcast contains strong language and abstract ideas not suitable for all intelligent life forms. Oh dear! I mean, oh my! The year 10,000? But I promised Leela I'd be on time for dinner. Relax, Fry. Everyone we ever knew died thousands of years ago. Everyone we ever knew? Eh, I never liked those guys. Space. Time. Mind. Mind. Space. Time. Mind. Space. Time. Mind. Mind. Space. Time. Mind. Mind. Space. Time. Mind. Mind. I should somehow, somehow do a Jedi mind I meld meld in Can I lay one more on you? Um, yeah, but in this half hour, remember, I wanna, I wanna defend my view. <laughs> so, I'm, But in not my view, I want to actually try out Kripke's argument against four-dimensionalism and see what you think about that. Okay. So, But you uh, go first. Thought okay, experiment so, number two. So this is something that I've been obsessed with since I was like in high school. Uh, it's the Einstein book from Gödel Escher Bach yeah. by, by Douglas Hofstetter. Exactly. And so um, the Einstein book is a, uh, it's a book that has a computer program written in it. And the computer program is a is a program for simulating Einstein's brain, right? And you run the program like uh, like Searle runs the Chinese understanding program. You like page through the book and you follow the instructions. And um, when I was an undergrad, my logic professor was this guy Patrick Hayes, who uh, he is a philosophy professor, but also a computer science guy. And he was like really huge in early artificial intelligence. I, I think he. I think he gets credit for having discovered the frame problem. Oh, cool. All right. So anyways, I, I told him about the Einstein book, and I asked him this question. I said, uh, uh, two-part question. First part, because uh, he's like a hardcore functionalist, like super like believer in strong artificial intelligence. I said, first off, does it matter uh, for the po- uh, how fast you run the program? He's like, no, it doesn't matter. From the inside, it'll seem to Einstein like everything is normal. Right, and then, I, and then I asked him the second part was, well, why do you even have to run the program? Right, isn't just the book, the, the book itself, without anyone turning the pages or, or running the program, isn't doesn't that contain the entirety of Einstein's subjective experience? And so, even though the program's not being run from the inside, and he said, no, you got to run the program. Yeah, you have to run it, and running requires temporal passage. Is that where this is going? And so he, and so like you know, I, I said like, look, I, I share that intuition, but like, why, why do, why do you have to have? Why does the program have to be run? Why isn't it? Suffi- doesn't it suffice that you've got everything? Right. So this there. is a kind of eternal. I wonder about this view sometimes when I think about eternalism. Oh yeah, there's some and, super related, right? And pan computationalism as well. So yeah. Uh, yeah. Why isn't just the static representation of a, of a program enough to have the program being implemented? Uh, I think it's because it deeply in, ingrained is the idea that a program is just, I mean, is a, is a set of instructions that need to be executed. 
Um, yeah. And that, you know, there's this old famous quote that time is God's way of stopping everything from happening at once. Um, <laughs> And I don't know who <laughs> I don't know who said that. But, uh, um, it, that's I think relevant to worries about um, that. That maybe I mean I don't know. I don't know this guy, so I'm not sure what he's saying. But one worry you might have is yeah, if they're not temporally segregated and don't happen one sequentially, one after another, then what's the difference between that and saying they're happening all at once? Um, and, and that doesn't seem to make sense of the whole idea of computation, which is breaking down things in the simple steps, which can be iterated and repeated. Yeah. Um, so you need temporal notions that make sense of how programs function, I think, but or how maybe, computation works. Maybe the temporal notions can just um, reduce, you know, so go back to uh, set theoretic Pythagoreanism from, uh, what was that, episode two? A so these hope. hope. <laughs> a new hope. So, uh, oh, that's episode four. Sorry, I just failed yeah. my Star Wars exam. Shit. <laughs> <laughs> this is, I think, Attack of the Clones. Ah, uh, right. damn it. Right. So, uh, but anyway, like you know, sets aren't intrinsically temporal. You get right. you 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 get time into it after you've built numbers, and then you you build these ordered tuples, and uh, time is just going to be one of the one of the coordinates in this yeah. like. This uh, and it doesn't line. look like you need in, uh, moving or anything. You just need the exactly. set of coordinates. That's right. That's right. So there's a sense in which, on that view, uh, the 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 entirety of reality is just a closed Einstein book. Yeah, that you know, I was playing around with that view um, when I was uh, thinking about w when Eric and I were talking about um, um, his idea for uh, what is that? Uh, what does he call it? Um, Kant meets cyberpunk or whatever. Yeah, switch cable. Yeah, switch cable. Yeah. yeah. Uh, but so one, I was thinking one cool idea would be just that the universe is just this static program. Right. And what we perceive as 3D objects, I mean, in a way, it kind of fits with Hoffman's view, Donald Hoffman, you know, um, uh, who has this idea that uh, the experience we have of ordinary physical objects is akin to desktop icons on your computer, and that what a desktop icon does is stand for a certain, you know, computate a certain location in memory, a certain data structure, a certain set of bits and zeros and ones or whatever. Um, and so when you click on it and manipulate it, you are interacting with something that's computational at a deep level. But the icon, of course, is designed to hide all that complexity yeah. and designed to make it really super easy for you to interact with it. And so his idea is, yeah, the same with the table and the chairs and the sun and the moon. It's kind of like uh, an icon. It's the way consciousness represents or the deep structure of reality, but uh, we're cut off from it. And of course he has a weird panpsychist version and I'm not going that far, but uh, or I'm, you know, I'm not going any way with him, but I'm just saying it's, it fits with what he's saying. <clears throat> but the interesting thing underneath it would be a static, unchanging, eternal, just set list of computations um, and computational instructions, but that are never run. They're just there. And then this yeah. is, this is the result of it. Um, yeah. The illusion of running and passage and stuff. And, you know, I think that's like a super weird view. Yeah. Kiss your <laughs> and, presentism goodbye. Kiss your presentism goodbye. Exactly. Exactly. I mean, I don't know how to rule. I mean, this is how why I like talking with Eric and people like Eric is because I'm not afraid of strange ideas. And um, I like common sense. And I don't think you should violate it too quickly in line with your principle. I don't think you should right. throw it away at the first step and, you know, so forth. But at the same time, um, uh, 
I've been convinced since I was a small child that something crazy has to be true. I mean, you read Einstein, you learn about quantum mechanics, stuff's weird. Um, you learn about Cantor, things get weirder. I mean, something weird has to be true. So uh, I think that by that a lot of times we close debate off um, with incredulous stares and mocking and sort of debate setting. And, you know, to be honest with you, I think people like Dennett kind of are a, a pernicious influence in this sense. And you always poop it uh, on my man, Dennett. Yeah, I'm not fond of him. And, um, you know, he wrote this paper called Higher Order Truths About Schmest. Yeah, I love that paper. It really condescendingly says, look, guys, don't waste a whole generation of uh, smart people working on stuff that's bullshit. Whereas yeah. I say, look, we need to explore all these possibilities, all the theories, all the relations between them. Let people explore what's interesting to them and stop trying to tone police and, and agenda set and how about just let smart people think about ideas? How about that? And how about stop telling people to stop pursuing ideas because you personally think they're a waste of time? I think, uh, uh, you know, I I'm, agree with I'm both of you guys. I'm against door shutting. I'm against door shutting. I agree with both of you guys. I think you can't legislate what's interesting. That you got to be just maximally democratic about it and let people follow, follow whatever. But at the same time, I, I do think each person should worry about, they should ask themselves, am I just doing... Did I just get stuck into some local minimum because, like, some professor complimented me because my yeah. work was similar to his work? You should. Well, I, that's I, an important point. No, I, I'm I telling people read to pursue the their hearts. I'm telling, people the, I'm telling people the opposite. You know that the that you know um, that that when you come into a seminar with a with a strange idea and someone says, "Oh yeah." like the professor in most cases, or people dismiss and what gets published in journals. You know, again, this is something that Marcus Arvin talks a lot about on his, the blog, yeah. Cocoon, that there's a kind of, you know, limiting to what gets counted as interesting. By the way, he posted this really cool thing to Ruth Milliken's Dewey lectures where she yeah. worried about the pace of philosophy. And not only philosophers worry, but it's the same with physics. So, you know, Higgs himself published when the, he got the um, Nobel Prize for the Higgs-Bosen, the Higgs uh, he says, look, I don't know if I could have been um, uh, a physicist nowadays because the way I came up with all this stuff was, you know, working very slowly on thinking about yeah. stuff at my own pace and what wasn't popular but I thought was interesting. And I think that that's, that's something that we should have. We need – so, again, in this idea of exploring modal space, remember, that's my, my – the modal knot uh, uh, or whatever word that is, uh, kind of mapping out – what things are consistent, which things are not consistent, what relations in, of entailment and so forth are there between all that stuff. You know, something similar-esque to something like the project that you get in Chalmers Constructing the World, although I don't agree with everything he says there. I think that's an interesting kind of idea to just map out the chart the sea, <laughs> just cardiography, just, you know, sailing, <laughs> what's connected to what and where are the joints and where – and a lot of people get locked into their theorizing. They go, that's not a joint. And then someone comes along and they go, oh, that is a joint, actually. You can sever that. And that does come apart. And then you get non-kidding geometry or you get, um, you know, speaking of Ted Sider, you get his uh, temporal counterpart theory. I mean, so people start coming out with interesting new ideas. And, you know, some of them have, are got to be useful and interesting. So I, I, like that's the multiple attitude. draft theory of consciousness. That's pretty good. That's a good one. <laughs> I say let them pursue it, you know. Yeah, yeah. You know, well, but it's funny because I was watching this video from I'll, – I'll just stop talking about that. I was watching this video from the Tucson because, you know, I, uh, we didn't get to go this year because I'm broke. 
Yeah. And so uh, um, I was watching a video, though, where they were talking with Deepak Chopra. And I'm not oh. a big fan of Deepak Chopra. Oh. And, in fact, I sort of have flirted with the idea that he's possibly a charlatan. Yeah. Um, and not because of his Eastern, because Eastern philosophy is bad. I like Eastern philosophy. Yeah, I like right, it. same here. But, but, you know, he was involved with this weird product called Zri, which was this, like, um, it was basically elderberry juice with some um, uh, other stuff, and it was marketed as this really, like, ancient Ayurvedic kind of uh, uh, herbal medicine. Yeah. And I agree that it's good to drink elderberry juice, and turmeric does help with inflation, uh, excuse me, yeah. inflation, uh, arthritis, swelling, and so forth. But they were marketing it as uh, as this kind of like tier structure where you have to recruit people. I mean, yeah. so anyway, and he was like this associated with it in some way as like the spokesman or somehow endorsing it. And I was turned off by that. Yeah. It seems like he's really into marketing this Eastern stuff as opposed to exploring. I, to me, that's my personal um, a take on it that he's more interested in money than ideas and, you know, yeah. whatever. So I don't find myself uh, attracted to that view um, or that worldview that money is more important than exploration but anyway and maybe that's not fair and I'd be willing to uh, be corrected if someone wants to defend um, Deepak uh, but anyway so he was he was being interviewed on this thing and they were asking about Dennett they were like oh Dennett was here and he was you know saying this stuff and and uh, Deepak said well I'd have to drink a lot before I took Dennett's view seriously and I don't drink <laughs> And I was like laugh. I was like the only time in my life I've ever found myself in agreement with something that deep. Uh, by the way, two things, <laughs> and then I want to get you to get on Kripke. Okay. Um, <laughs> the first thing is, uh, I, if if you haven't seen, I highly recommend uh, a short little YouTube video of uh, Richard Dawkins and Deepak. You know, Richard Dawkins kind of a jerk in his own yeah. his own way, yeah. Yeah, but definitely. this is great. And he, you know, uh, I, my interpretation is like. There's a there's a point in the video where Deepak gets afraid. <laughs> got to see it. I don't want to spoil it. Second thing I'll is, watch it, I'll watch it. some future episode we got to dedicate to. You got to let me uh, set the record straight about Dennett. I think you know, I, I do think that he has a kind of negative aspect. I agree with you on some of that, uh, but I, I think that some of his positive views are actually deserve more of a hearing. On this show, and so I want to be Dennett. That's for fine. Day. I feel like he gets enough of a hearing, and uh, yeah. there's a kind of a hero worship uh, kind really? of thing going on um, amongst some people. Underdog. Let's do Kripke. Yeah, let's do Kripke. So uh, wh one of the interesting things, you know, because I, I think that Kripke is technically secretly an actualist and also a presentist, and uh, but I don't know. He also says weird things. Atheist. Um, I, I'm not, you know, I'm not against that as long as you're not um, religious in the sense of, you know, trying to force a, a religion. Um, I'm agnostic on the question of what we should believe about that stuff. So, and I think he is too. You know, I think that uh, Kripke is is honest about what he does, what he's open to, and what he's not, and where um, where he doesn't know the answers. He's, you know, if you actually listen and talk to him, he's very clear that, like, you know, some things he finds very confusing. He doesn't know what to say. And identity yep. through time, by the way, is one of them. Um, I had uh, one of my first classes I had with Kripke was on identity through time, and what it means for an object to exist through time. And he, it's very clear that that this is something that's very puzzling to him, um, and he doesn't quite know what the right answer is. I feel like uh, the causal theory of reference gives one a way to understand. I think some typical objections about truth makers about how we refer to past things like Socrates. And so I think that that's 
that's useful to answer those objections. What does it mean to refer to Socrates? Well, it's to be in a mental state, which is causally and historically related to the guy. And the guy doesn't have to be around anymore for that historical chain to have been the thing which produced the, the thing in my head. Um, so there doesn't have to be a literal chain, that, but it has to be a series of causes that lead to the thing being there now. And so I do think that this is very congenial to um, thinking about presentism. But you're right. The actual argument is the rotating disc argument, which I think is kind of famous in the uh, in the oral tradition. And people have, you know, it's not been published as far as I know. But you, you know this, right? That's what you said, the rotating disc? Yeah. Should, one of us should summarize it. Go ahead. You do it. So um, if you, it's important that the disc is homogenous. Yeah. And if you think about um, from the point of view of uh, a four-dimensionalist, what the disc is, what, it, what the disc really is, is, is um, it, it's a uh, cylinder. Yeah. It's a cylinder. And what we, call, what we call the, yeah, it's a worm. Space-time worm. And you know, I like the 4th of July, those 4th of July things that you light, and the worms. Yeah. And I, I once did this really gross thing in class. I was explaining this because I teach this class, the philosophy of space and time. Yeah. And we were talking about the disc argument. I said, okay, picture this. Picture this long uh, hot dog. <laughs> and uh, now, if, if the disc were non-homogenous, yeah. if, if the disc had a red dot on it, and uh, and I the give disc, some clues. Yeah, and and so you you and the and the and the disc were rotating, then um, we, from the from the point of view of uh, the fourth dimensionalist, the hot dog has a spiral. It has a worm inside of it. Yeah, it has a vein inside of it, and it's twisting around. Yeah, this is getting a little uncomfortable for me, to be honest. <laughs> yeah, see, like I grossed everybody out in the class. They're like, "Oh man, Dick." Well, I'm vegan, and that's Why are also we? Vegan. yeah. Yeah, so I'm sorry, but I'm, I am... <laughs> Can uh, it be a veggie dog, at least? Uh, I mean, it's still going to be phallic in an inappropriate way. With a gummy, it's got a gummy worm in it. <laughs> a gummy worm is better. Yeah. Okay. So anyway, from the, from the point of view of... Uh, but that's of, why, by the way, Kripke, when he actually runs this argument, he simplifies it by talking... He, he makes the kind of holographic claim that you can... That anything you could describe in three dimensions plus time, you could describe in, um, in, in a simplified two-dimensional structure. So you don't need it to be a, um, a cone or a cylinder. You can just have a two-dimensional thing um, and you still get the same idea. But yeah, it just makes it simple. So um, all there is is the cylinder, and if it's a, a homogenous disk for, for the four-dimensionalist, there'd be and no difference. And that's all that there is. That's right. So it's only Yeah, that's all that there is. And so for the four-dimensionalist, there would be no difference between the disks rotating and the disks not rotating. Now, well, if that's it, not true. Well, that's, you're rushing it wait, a little wait, bit. Wait, wait. Well, let me do my fast version, then you can fix it up afterwards. Yeah. So if, it, if the disk is homogenous, if, for example, if it has a red spot on it, then uh, there is a difference between its... For the four-dimensionalist, there is a difference between it's rotating and it's not rotating. If it's not rotating, then the, 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 what will correspond to the red dot is a straight line, a straight red line inside of the um, pink cylinder... But um, if the disc is rotating, then you'll have a curly Q, a red curly Q inside of, of the pink cylinder. However, right. if the disc is homogenous, then, then all you have in either case is, is uh, a pink cylinder. So uh, if, there is, if there is some real difference between a homogenous disc rotating and a homogenous disc rota ro not rotating, that's not a difference that the four-dimensionalist can account for. So therefore, 
four-dimensionalism is false. That's right. my understanding how the argument is supposed to go. Exactly. So, yeah, that's, exa that's basically right. So, um, the four-dimensional theory, but see, I think you left out the kind of crucial claim of the four-dimensional theory, which is that what, really there's not a disk, but a series of instantaneous disks or time slices. Yeah, there's just the cylinder. Um, it's just the cylinder, but the cylinder is kind of a representation of a bunch of slices, though. So they're separate, and and that in 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 a sense, each t moment or time slice is like unchangeable and eternal. It's set, and then the next one that comes after that. Um, so that if you think of the history of this disc, it's just going to be a series of these still not moving things. Right. And then Kripke's claim is that you cannot in any way account for the motion of the disk in this series of still images or still a holographic uh, slices or whatever, time slices, but yet there's intuitively an objective fact about whether the disk is moving well, or not. The way you're describing it, Sorry. The way you're describing it, Richard, it doesn't really matter whether it's a homogenous disk or a non-homogenous disk. You just say like at each, in, it, at each instant it's not moving. It, it really does. It almost doesn't matter whether it's homogenous or not. And the re the homogeneity of it is trying to just avoid a certain objection, which is to say that all there is to the disk's motion is a certain um, dot being at one location in one slice and the right, next so thing dot being at a different location. And then they would say, oh, well, there's a way to – because, you know, this yeah, is yeah, – by yeah. the way, by the, this is how physicists like to cheat and get out of Zeno's paradoxes. Um, right. And this it might bring us back to this, you know, full circle here. I don't know if you have any timers here or not going on, but um, we've got eight minutes left. Well, that's not fair because at first we didn't talk about Kripke for a lot part of the first eight minutes. But but anyway, so a lot of people will say, look, the way that um, uh, Zeno's paradoxes about time are solved by by calculate or by Newton is by introducing something called instantaneous velocity, and instant or velocity at an instant. And so what that means, though, according to Newton, is simply that at the next instant you'll be somewhere else. So he recognizes that at that given instant, you're not in motion. But he says, what it means to be in motion is that the next time, the next instant, you're not in the same place relative to you know, time in absolute space or whatever. Um, so that you can, but that you give up something there, which is that at any given instant, you cannot say whether the thing is in motion or not without referring to the next instant or the previous instant. Because what it means to be in motion is just to say, over this series of uh, time slices, the thing is in different locations at different time slices. Right. And that, it's that thing, I think, really, that Kripke is responding to. Um, this way of the four-dimensionalist trying to capture or make sense of what motion would be. And he says, no, that's not good enough, because now think about this. What if the disk is homogenous? So there's nothing in the next time slice which is different right. at all from, from, from the uh, right. time slice point of view. So you right. can't even play this game about, oh, well, it's in a different – the instantaneous velocity game doesn't work. I mean, he's really, right. I think, trying to undermine this Newtonian idea that instantaneous velocity captures what we mean by um, moving over time. Uh, and and so 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 what in in that sense you, it's you're right you could you once you get that far you could almost put the thing back in there and say look <laughs> the the basic question here is really is instantaneous velocity really doing justice to what we mean by moving um, yeah. and uh, I, you know I think someone like Kripke is going to argue no um, yeah. so but anyway let's take the, the let's make it homogenous so you're I think you're right though that you picked up on that that the way I think of it it doesn't really matter whether it is homogenous or not. And because, you know, even in this class where he was floating this idea, this argument, people were objecting, oh, well, homogenous matters 
you're not real. And right. he got really sort of annoyed and pissed off by that. He was like, what? <laughs> People, it's like, who cares? Yes, it's not real, but Aristotle thought it was, so it's perfectly impossible that there are homogenous matter. I want to and, use the Aristotle thought it was. <laughs> move more often. I think my yeah, life would be exactly. a lot easier if I could just say, look, by the way, <laughs> Aristotle thought, you know, Aristotle had an a priori argument for why there had to be men on the moon. Yeah. You know that what one? No, so I know. Every, uh, so there's all these elements, right? Yeah. Four, four or five elements. And um, so uh, the, the other elements that we're aware of, there are creatures that are proper to those elements. So water has got uh, fish in it, and uh, the earth has worms in it, and the air has birds in it. Maybe this is an inductive argument. Right. For, uh, I don't know what, what kind of argument it is. but um, So there must be something adapted so, to the moon is what he was saying. Well, so fire, fire is an element. We've not observed on Earth any fire creatures. But the moon is made <laughs> out of fire. So the, and there's got to be fire creatures. So that's where they are. They're yeah. on the moon. Well, in the sun. I mean, if you just turn it to the yeah, sun. The yeah, sun exactly. Too. That's where they, it's clear they are, their fire creatures are there. Um, <laughs> but anyway, so you, you can say Aristotle, you can call him the Macedonian, as certain people we know like to the call Macedonian. him. The Macedonian, you know who calls him that, right? Uh, or yeah. you can call him, what, a greater term of respect, the philosopher, <laughs> um, as the master of those who know. Um, but anyway, I, I like the, the so, so the basic argument, as I see it, is there's a basic feature of reality that cannot be accounted for in four-dimensional terms. That is the fact that there is a fact of the matter about whether this thing is in motion or not. Um, and yeah. uh, you can't make sense of that. Now, no one, as far as I know, has ever said, well, maybe there's just no fact of the matter about whether it's in motion. I don't know if that's, I wouldn't want to say that, but I wonder if anyone has ever just like said, yeah, in a universe where there's only a homogenous, I mean, isn't this kind of like the Leibniz thing? If, could there, in a world where it's just one sphere, does it make yeah. sense to, to say that it's moving in any direction right. at all? Um, I don't know well, yeah. sure, but it's, this seems like a pretty obvious move to go say like, you know what? Fuck it. There, right. There is no difference. <laughs> There's no difference. I think, though, that it's intuitive that there should be a difference. Yeah. Um, so, like, I'm, you know, I've been, I've been slipping deeper and deeper into Kantianism recently. Nice. And, you know, one way you could go with this is to say, like, look, we can conceive of it. And so, so therefore, what? Well, it does tell us something about our conception of, of space and time. I don't know if you can go whole hog and say this tells us something about space and time itself. But how about if it tells us something about the way we model space and time and that four-dimensional yeah. modeling doesn't really capture or do justice to what we're... So if, if that's right. true, because that's a pretty striking conclusion that, you know, therefore, um, if general relativity is committed to four-dimensionalism, general relativity doesn't actually capture or model the... Uh, the way we think reality might be. Right. That's a that's a pretty bold claim. In fact, I remember Kripke kind of saying in, in class that he was like almost hesitant to give an argument that had such a striking claim um, because he's just doing it on a priori. So he is sensitive to the idea that he doesn't want to, it seems weird to refute relativity on the basis of a priori, or not relativity, but four-dimensionalism yeah. on the basis of a priori considerations. Yeah. Um, but at the same time, I do think that we're, that this is an interesting argument. Um, yeah. It does seem to me very, now people have tried to respond by, oh, well, you can include like, you know, arrows or like, force vectors or something in the representation, the instantaneous moments, and that would give you some clue as to what was going on in there. 
And then he goes, well, what are those grounded in, though? Like, you could add them arbitrarily, but how right. do you know when to add them and when not to add them? Right. You know, and this is, you know, I thought, I remember thinking in this class that in, in the case of the bucket, we have an answer here. Um, because, you know, uh, there are forces being acted on the bucket. Um, and so you, and so... One, one thing you might want to do is, is, is ask yourself whether, you know, a person that was on there would experience any forces or something like that. But then that's not the way the thing is set up. Right. Um, but, I, but I do think that this kind of forces you towards some kind of substantivalism about space. If you really think there's an answer to this question, it must be because there's some, like, background against which there's an objective answer to this thing being in motion or not. Um, so I do think that, you know, this substantivalism is kind of in the background here. Um, and that, uh, well, I don't know, because in the Zimmerman article, I think I remember him saying that in order to make sense of relativity theory, you need substantivalism. So maybe, and in fact, in the, in the Maudlin book, he claims that substantivalism right. is necessary to make sense of this stuff too. So maybe yeah. there's just no getting around substantivalism unless you like string theory and you well, realize Maudlin's that. solution to the Newton bucket is uh, kind of substantivalism. And that's something we discussed in our lost episode. Our lost episode, exactly. Which is went out for a three hour tour and just never came back. That's right. <laughs> but it, it's on an island somewhere making a, <laughs> making a, a moonshine still out of bamboo. It's lost in space on an island. What if I were to tell you they all died? What then? Obviously, you'd decide not to make the same mistake twice. Now, what if one of those people grew, yes, grew up... Yes, Professor, no. What if one of those lives I sent down there is a child who grows up to be the next Adolf Hitler? Or can't say. Every first-year philosophy student has been asked that question since the earliest wormholes were discovered. But this is not a class in temporal logic. It's not theoretical. It's not hypothetical. It's real. <laughs> This is Brad. What are you doing? What are you doing? Carving. Carving nature. Carving nature at its joints. So this Kripke argument, I think, is a fairly serious challenge to the four-dimensionalist model. That 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 which which to bring this full circle, how we started with this kind of you know. So so you have people like Brit Brogard, yeah. and um, she, she I think she gives an interesting kind of take on what a, a four-dimensional a four-dimensional kind of presentism, which I think is an interesting view. And of course, I like I said, but earlier I would kind of join that with a, a, some views about grounding. 
where, you know, I'd probably say the same about mind and brain, you know, that the mind is grounded in the brain. And what that means is that it's a priority reducible or something like that, or hamada, hamada, blah, blah, blah. So I don't know. So grounding seems interesting. And a lot of people are using that notion. Um, so, but, so I like this kind of, you know, the past is real in this sense, in the sense that it's deducible or grounded in or somehow related to in a kind of metaphysical way um, uh, to, to the present. I like that idea. But I like Kripke's stuff, and I think that that puts pressure on four-dimensionalism as being kind of um, as uh, being an accurate model of the physical world. And then I think, yeah, you know what? And maybe you can see Kripke's argument as dovetailing with the kind of string theory arguments, um, which suggest that space is not a fundamental element or feature, um, and so that it's wrong to model space and time as a kind of static four-dimensional structure in the way that Minkowski space-time um, uh, does. Now, you know, I don't know. So the, the, that's speculation. But then again, you know, that's why we're here. I, I, I hope that, that under every episode there should be a disclaimer that, that you know. We're full of shit. Well, no, that we're exploring. That we're exploring. <laughs> that we're um, engaging in exploratory dialogue. But, you know, I don't have... Uh, I haven't published any of this stuff in a book. I'm, you know, I would defend it, I guess, but I don't know if I really truly believe it. I don't know. I don't know what I believe. These questions are hard, I think. Yeah. And I think that you know, having these kind of discussions helps me think through them. Um, and I think you know that's why we're having it, not because I have some. I mean, I do have an axe to grind. Like I said, I want to try to defend as much as like what I believed before I came a became a philosopher as possible, and what I believed before I came became a philosopher was presentism, <laughs> actualism phenomenal realism about consciousness like all that free will all that stuff you know maybe none of it's real and maybe i will have to give it up but i i, I haven't you know i was reading this paper the other day on on something about this and they were saying oh you know relativity theory just makes it the case that that presentism's dead in the water. It's not a yeah. respectable theory. You have to be a crazy religious person like William Lane Craig and not really understand general relativity and say strange things. And I went, wow, that's, but that's not true. There are respectable, there's kind of, there are respectable versions of these theories that just are underexplored. Um, and so I think it's interesting to explore them. I want to ask, I want to ask you about exploration and I want to ask if you have the following experience as a teacher. Yeah. And this is an experience I've had many, many times. And that is if I'm teaching a subject that I, I really know inside and out, like, you know, my main thing is philosophy of mind. Um, uh, the students are a little bit bored. Yeah. I, I feel like the, the, those classes are just kind of, you know, the, those days are just kind of mm, not, not so exciting. But when I'm teaching something that's kind of new to me, I, I'm like, I'm just like teaching it because I want to, I want to learn about it. Right. Those are the classes where it feels like the, the students are really into it and, and the whole yeah. thing is really exciting. And I wonder if you have a similar. I do, but I try to make all my classes like that second kind of class. Um, <laughs> you don't talk about things that you're an expert on. I don't feel like I'm an expert on anything except what a lot of people have said about these topics and all of them are probably wrong <laughs> so I don't think I'm an expert on consciousness except for that so I have it I know I mean yeah, so from the inside I'll say certain things uh, I'm an expert on what Block says about consciousness I'm an expert on what Chalmers says about consciousness I'm an even expert about what Dennis says about it although begrudgingly an expert because it's required by the field but nonetheless that's where the expertise lies. It lies in understanding the views and positions and argumentative moves within that, sh that space, that structural space. Yeah. 
But like, what do I believe about all that stuff? I don't fucking know. Um, but you have the but you have the experience that's that your classes are just more enjoyable for the students when you yourself are are exploring things. Like, well, I try to present to it in that way. I try to yeah. present it oh, in, in in the in terms of. Look, who the hell knows what's going on? Let's try to be serious and look at what people have said and then also what we think and have a discussion about it. Yeah. Um, and that is a kind of exploration. Now, you're right. You anticipate certain moves and people will say things. Oh, yeah, okay, well, that was already moves already been made. And, and you can get into this kind of it's all, you know. Um, but, you know, one of the, it was pedagogically, one of the things that really allowed me to be free, I think, um, and it's interesting is the recording of my lectures on in video form because once I got it out of my I felt like you know there's always this battle about you know I have to cover this material in class because you know you have this really full yeah. of yourself view that unless I explain it to them they can't possibly understand it and I understand that's a bit <laughs> egocentric and um, you know I don't think I'm that great of a teacher but I did but I do feel like teachers have that view like oh we didn't, and students do too. They say, we didn't talk about that in class. I didn't know I had to know that. And you say, it's right. in the book, and they look mystified. <laughs> right. Like, Whoa, book. <laughs> um, so, uh, and, and, but uh, on the same time, discussion and exploration to me is important. So there's always that battle in class where you're exploring something that someone says, and the class unfolds in a nonlinear way where you might have said something, but, and then you go, oh, well, we didn't really systematically cover this, and I wonder right. if they really understand that this comes before that, and Descartes didn't know Socrates, and what, you know, because um, sometimes students will say things like, you know, we'll ask you questions about whether Descartes knew Socrates, and you'll go, uh, no, we're talking about them together, but a long time in between. Yeah. So you, you said this is freeing so my, the video. My point was that by recording these lectures, I felt like I got it out of my system. And now if we get sidetracked in class, I go, oh, yeah, and by the way, I have this sort of well put in a video. So watch that to get clear yeah. on, the, on the relation here. But in class, we can kind of deviate from yeah. it. So to me, that would help me sort of try to, to recapture some of the spontaneity in the classroom. Interesting. Yeah, I wrote a book, and that helped. Yeah. By the way, my students like your book. Oh, thank you. Um, they were some of them were suspicious when they found out that we knew each other, and there was this general feeling of, "Am I trying to get them to make you money?" Um, and you know, I said, "No, not really. It's just a good book, and he happens to be, you know, happens to be." They knew how little money I made. <laughs> exactly. They well, they have. The, see, they me. don't realize that the authors are they're, they they they're under the impression that there's a shit ton of money being made, and they're correct. <laughs> and that money is being made by academic book publishers and how book right. houses. Yeah, not the authors. Um, not the authors. That's exactly right. We're I'm we're just, we're forced for indentured servants to the academic publishers. I'm just some weird obsessive dude that wanted to write a book about my favorite. <laughs> exactly. <subject>. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> um. So anyway, so I agree with you though. If you if you're just giving them a lecture. Uh, they don't like it. And if you're just going through stuff that is sort of not exciting or new to you, right. um, then that's a bit boring as well, at least at the undergraduate level. Um, but it's also hard because, you know, we're trying to have like discussions about quantum mechanics and consciousness and all of a sudden they're bringing up the secret. And I'm like, going, oh, don't <laughs> fucking bring up the secret, dude. I didn't realize that in that book, The Secret, they try to connect it to quantum mechanics and stuff. Like, I, I've never read it. I just sort of, you know, oh, yeah. learned about it yeah. uh, secondhand because I, th you know, even though I like weird and wacky ideas, I like seriousness about them. And, you know, I, just because I'm open to multiverses and simulation, that doesn't mean that I'm into, like, you know, it's a giant eyeball flying through space type bullshit unless there's arguments. And then I'll look at them, and if there's reasons, and wherever the reasons come from, I'll think about them. Yeah. But I'm not into, like, silliness for silliness' sake or 
or weirdness for weirdness's sake. And I don't appreciate non-seriousness. And I do feel like um, probably that secret stuff is not serious. And, and also, I would have to say, if I understand the law of attraction, which says that you get what you want in some sense or what you think about, uh, you bring to you, um, I think that has like deep implications for like blame the victim, for like yep. you deserve to be raped if you were yep. raped, you deserve it, uh, you brought it to yourself. Every time somebody says everything happens for a reason, I, I, cry, I cry inside because I think about yeah. children dying <laughs> right now in Crimea, for instance, and I say, oh, yeah, everything happens for a reason. Like, people are assholes. Okay, so I agree with that. But if you're telling me that somehow it was meant that that child bleed to death right. from a stomach wound that it received because of some asshole shooting at you, then fuck that. I know oh, everything I doesn't happen for a reason. I object you know. to your calling it not serious. I think that doesn't do justice to its perniciousness. It's actually serious. Yeah. It's, it's seriously it's really bad. bad and yeah. seriously damaging. I mean, I feel bad. I don't want to like poop on students because, you know, students are thinking about stuff and reading this stuff or whatever, but I yeah. do think that it is it, 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 this, there's this idea, you know, I think that when you start learning about rape culture and how deeply entrenched in, in, um, in our society, this kind of stuff is, mm. uh, there's this attitude about the world being just and people getting what they deserve, which pervades, <sighs> people's thinking, which just ultimately, uh, I mean, it's why people feel comfortable saying if you're poor, you deserve to be poor. Yeah, right. <laughs> you know, it's right. why people feel comfortable saying yeah. you were asking for it if you were, you know. Yeah. Um, and, and so I, to me, I just, that it, it hurts me when people say stuff like that. It pains me on a, on a deep and emotional level that, that this kind of, that, I mean, it's not, to a large extent, you know, it's not, it's hard to blame the the people because as a product of this deeply entrenched societal structure, it's no right. surprise that people end up saying stuff like this or thinking this kind of stuff. Uh, but I wonder how how we would go about changing it. I really do. I think uh, our sp our podcast will help. <laughs> our podcast will help. Spread the light. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Um, you know. I know. I I do. You know. I was reading. Do you do you read? Do you know who Bell Hooks is by any by any chance? Do you know this philosopher? Uh, she's, name. she's kind of a, a well-known uh, philosopher and, and I, and I like her stuff. And I, you know, I, I, part of me wants deeply to talk about these issues about race and class, you know, cause you know, I have own, I have my own issues about class and my background. Um, yeah. being someone from the underclass, uh, you know, s single parent raised on welfare, arrested at an early age, juvenile hauled, you know, all that stuff. So, um, that's not even lower class. That's like the, the under of the under. And so I have feelings about that, and I've always felt, you know, I worked my way out of that. And I don't want to, I don't want to derail this whole conversation into something. My point of bringing that all up is I have deeply held views about uh, this stuff. Yeah. And, I, and as a kid, I used to say things to people like, don't let my skin color fool you. I'm only white on the outside. Um, and the reason I would say stuff like that is because I felt like it's class that matters, and uh, race is kind of, a lot of, in a lot of times, a distraction, and often they overlap, and class and race overlap in a, in a lot of ways. Um, but that class is really, I think, um, something that's important. But my point about all this was that as, as much as I deeply want to have these discussions, I do feel like there's enough already with the white guys talking about these kinds of issues. And I do recognize that we're <laughs> a couple of white guys. So, I mean, it's not like I don't think we ought not to talk about these issues. I just feel like all it's time to let other, it's time to hear what some other people have to say about these kinds of yeah. things. Uh, people who are directly influenced by it and affected by it. People like Bell and hooks and um, others as well. So I, you know, I'm, and, and even though I feel like I've been through it in some extent, you know, it, it's washed off now. And I had this amazing experience in a classroom one time 
where, you know, I wrote about some of this in my dissertation, like the introduction to it, where I kind of vaguely alluded to some of the, you know, background of my uh, actual history. And then um, one of my students, for some reason, read this. I don't, because I have it on my website, I guess. So, you know, they, yeah. they so this student came up to me and they said, oh, I read your, your, your introduction to your dissertation. I was like, wow, thank you. And she said, well, I had no idea you've been through so much in your life. And I was like, yeah, okay, well, you know, that's what life is. And she said, I thought you were just another white guy from Connecticut. <laughs> and, you know, this was here in New York City. And I was like, yeah, yeah, no, definitely not a white guy from Connecticut. But, you know, not that that's bad or anything. But what she meant, I think, was that here I was in a tie, in a shirt, teaching yeah. a classroom. And she assumed I was a middle class, upper class person. Right. Um, because that's what her experience has brought her to understand. And I was like, yeah, no, but um, it doesn't look that way. But I, it, I mean, excuse me, it does look like that way, but I'm not really that right. way. And I do feel eternally at, uh, out of place because a lot of philosophers are middle class, you know. Right. And I know, I know you're from a working class as well, so we, yeah. we have a similar kind of uh, background in this respect. Yeah. Anyway, so that's all I was going to say is I'm torn because I want to bring people on the podcast to talk about this issue. But yeah. I also felt like it's enough with the white guys talking about this issue. Well, we can bring some non-white, non-guys. Yeah, on. And, and listen to them. Right. Not talk over them or, like, pound our own. That's difficult. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, so uh, um, it's probably, we always say, do we have time? I'm not sure if we're continuing with this. We're, we should wind it up, wind it up, wind it down. So wind it in, up, wind it down. In summary, time well, you know, I think Aquinas, time, time, Aquinas said it best when he says, when I don't wonder about it, it's obvious what it is, but as soon as I think about it, it's completely mysterious what it is. Yeah. <laughs> and, you know, it's no mystery, I think, that the first two things that we discover are paradoxical are change, um, change over time. Uh, and that's Zeno's paradox. Parmenides and Zeno are clearly, I think, right. wrestling with this idea of change and impermanence and temporality and stuff. It's a deep mystery. Deep, deep, deep. Yeah. That's why I think probably time more fundamental than space. That's why it should have been um, time space mind. <laughs> but maybe mind is the most fundamental. Oh, man. Mind time space. <laughs> mind time space. So, or maybe uh, just mind space, mind sweeper space. You know, there's a whole bunch of stuff about time that we didn't cover. And uh, I think we're going to be coming back to it. Time and time again, Richard. Oh, God. By the way, that's a good movie. I don't know if you've ever seen that movie about the Jack the Ripper serial who goes through yes. time. <laughs> yeah, no, that's really cool. Yeah, that's a good movie. We talk about time travel at some point. Yeah. Uh, you know, there's this really cool Sidney Shoemaker journal article from, the I think, the 60s called Time Without Change. Yeah, right, right, right. Really, really cool. Really, everything cool. Shoemaker does is great. I mean, it's yeah, he's he does is worth reading. Exactly. He's like very that. careful. He's very patient. Like that um, stuff. Sometimes it's a bit slow and a bit chiselmy, by which I mean chiselming in the philosopher's lexicon sense, where you like, right, right. you know, you still. Well, some people I know are just like, oh my god, you know who does this a lot? Uriah. Uriah. I was going to say Uriah Kriegel. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I, was, I was reading something about him recently. He's got some new paper out. Um, oh, cognitive phenomenology. There are 37. <laughs> yeah, exactly. The number 37 jumped out. <laughs> the 37. I will explore the 37 aspects of the phenomenology of cognition. He's <laughs> <laughs> only five away from the perfect number of 42. <laughs> <laughs> 
No, but it's, I mean, not that that's bad. There's something to be said about precision, but yeah, there's also something about said about like, you know who doesn't do that? It's all fucking Kripke. Um, and you know what? This, I guess, um, is a yeah. nice place to end to wrap it up because I remember yeah. as a grad student coming to New York and the two people people told me I needed to pay attention to were Ruth Milliken and Saul Kripke. So I remember one of my fellow grad students was like, oh, you're going to UConn. They have Ruth Milliken there. I'd never heard of her before. And they said, yeah, she's like the next Saul Kripke or something like that. I was like, who the hell is Saul Kripke? So I figured maybe I should figure out who these guys were. And I bought Milliken um, on Clear and Confused Ideas, and I bought uh, Naming Necessity, and I read both of those. That, that was my um, – anyway, so anyway. But That's the thing start. that struck good me – it's a good start, right? Yeah. Um, the thing, and then I went and studied with Ruth, and then I went and studied with Kripke. So I got to meet them and, and then also be directly influenced by them. But anyway, um, the thing that struck me about Naming Necessity is just that it's like – well, it's the opposite of the way Kripke talks in person, <laughs> but it's, it's clear, it's concise, it's straightforward, it's devastating, and there's no chiseling, there's no technicality to it, it's completely right. intuitive, yeah. it's completely like after you read it, you go, why didn't I think of that already? Right. And, and it's not this technical jargon, I mean, yeah, that's, there is the te- and he can do the technical jargon, but it's not there. And right. so that, that to impress the crap out of me. And people that can do that, I admire. People like John Searle, people like... I was going to bring up John Searle. There's a John Searle quote. Uh, I forgot where I came across this Searle quote, but he said that one of his professors said, if you think about you know, the truly greats, no footnotes. No, no footnotes. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, but he backed down from that, though. You know he backed down from that. He said, yes, I used to believe that the truly great philosophy had no footnotes. And then, but now he says he allows it to have some footnotes or something. I forget what some he said. Some footnotes. Yeah, but, I, but as far as the stylists go, you know, I don't, I disagree with some of the content, but as far as like just a way of doing philosophy and writing philosophy. Right. Girl and, and Kripke, those, uh, they're my favorites. I love that. But see, that now, would you put Fodor in there? Because I would exclude Fodor. Oh, I, I love me some Fodor, too. Okay. See, I think he's a bad, I think he's a, a bad writer. And the granny doesn't help, and I don't know if he can help himself with that or not. I don't like the granny stuff. I don't like it's condescending, and I it's all he's trying to make it sound old fashioned, but that is granny pisses me off, and um, so uh, I don't know. I just don't think it's useful, and I don't know why. He, I mean, yeah, it's better than I agree with a lot of critiques of of what philosophical writing has come to. It's highly technical, overly technical. Overly, overly technical, overly, overly, overly technical, like technical to the point of it's just for obfuscation or, right. you know, um, I, I'm not against technicality. Technicality in the service of clarity is a beautiful thing. Um, you know who I think does a good job of that? Timothy Williams. <laughs> uh, but, but that, you know, so there, uh, it's, it's interesting to me that the norms of philosophical writing are pushing us more towards the technical, technical, and less towards the Kripke, Searle type stuff. Um, and I wonder if you could write, if you weren't Kripke, and if you could write a paper that was anything as accessible as Naming Necessity and have it published by um, anyone. I mean, I don't know the answer to that. I just wonder. I think that what gets published is highly technical, highly, highly technical. Um, and I do hanker for the good old days. Now, you know, some of it, you know, like, for instance, Ruth, I think her work is, is you know, not highly accessible, um, uh, um, but worth reading. And, you know, that's... She she does have a way of, you know, explaining what she's saying, but I think she develops her own language, uh, her own technical language way too quick and then constantly refers back to it over and over again to the point where if you're not fully immersed in the system, it's hard. It's so easy to yeah. caricature it that that's part of the reasons I think that 
although her work has had impact, it hasn't had the impact it deserves. Um, and that she is kind of a heroic underdog in philosophy. And I think reading her Dewey lecture kind of cements her status as heroic underdog in philosophy, which was already clearly cemented in my book anyway. But once you read it, you realize, yeah, heroic underdog status for sure. Um, so, you, but, but when you read Ruth and when you engage with her, you get the sense of someone struggling to express something. And that's what's worthwhile about her. It's, she's not using the technicalities to hide something, but she just doesn't know the right way to say what she's saying. So she's inventing these words and all this stuff because people haven't really said it before. And that, I think, is different where you're charting new terrain versus, you know, um, using a thousand symbols or whatever without uh, paying too much attention to, like, what they mean or something. Right. But anyway, so, I mean, writing's hard. I'm not, don't please, uh, casting stones in glass houses is my business. I understand that, but uh, yes. I know I'm not a great writer. My writing's terrible. In fact, I was rereading one of my earlier papers, and I was like, if I wasn't me, I wouldn't know what the fuck I was saying because there's like 50 <laughs> different interpretations of this sentence right here. And I, it's not clear which one I, I mean, it's literally not clear what I mean there. And so, you know, I did the best I could at the time, but a large part of it is that you, there's this pressure to publish. And yeah. so I, I will honestly say that some of the things that I published are published simply because I needed them to be published in order to have tenure at my institution. And that a couple, uh, there's, I look back on them and I go, well, they're not wrong, but I could, they could be clarified, they could be polished, they could sit for a bit. I would say it differently now, I would focus it different, I'd situate it in a different context. You know, and not for nothing, you know, um, that's not my best work. Some of it. I mean, some of it I stand by. I'm not going to name names of my papers here, but uh, I don't have that many, so you can look at the five or six I have and judge for yourself. But um, my point is that uh, if it weren't for the insane published pre pressure that I feel at the publish or perish you know, thing, I wouldn't have published most of the things which I have published right now at this point. I mean, eventually they probably would have been published, I think. You know what, Think what is it like to think that P? Yeah. Oh, that paper. That's perfect. Fine, fine paper. Well, that's the that's a classic example of this. You know. Um, so I'm glad that you brought that up because now that you volunteered to do the proofs for that. Yeah, you, that's you what know, I got to go do. I'm of the William James variety. I say, send me no proofs. <laughs> that's William James. But anyway, so that paper, you know, you you know the history of that paper. That was a paper that um I uh, the, the original core idea for the central argument of that paper, um, I had a long time ago, like in 2004. <laughs> and uh, I presented it like all over the place and we talked about it. I talked about it with everybody. I tried to get it published many times. It was rejected and I, and I was frustrated and a couple of times it was rejected for reasons that I thought were just silly and ludicrous, like A, not understanding Rosenthal and B, conflating implicit with unconscious and all kinds of just stupid stuff. Right. In fact, one time the reviewer wrote such a bad review that I wrote to the um, uh, editor of the journal and I said, excuse me, but this like person didn't read the paper. I don't say this. This is wrong. Um, and yeah. the editor wrote back to me and said the following thing, quote, I'm glad you found the review helpful. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> and I said, wow, fuck you too, uh, whoever Next. you are. But yeah, exactly. So anyway, but my point is that at the time I was frustrated. But then eventually we talked and we worked together and now we have that extra component, the general argument, which, you know, I think is, is fantastic. We have our discussion where the further working out of the central argument, which I think really led to that cool part of the paper where we talk about the higher order thought about the, the higher order thought that's a, you know, um, so that conscious thought right there. 
So I think the development of that paper was strengthened by the fact that it wasn't published. I mean, it's not published yet. So 2014, 2004, that's 10 years of me working on this idea, talking about it to people, nursing it, responding to objections, arguing with Rosenthal, arguing with you, talking to everybody and their dog about this. And now, now this paper, I think, is in a, in a, 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 at a point where I am going to say it's one of my strongest papers. Um, and that's because it's the product of all this joint collaboration, not the least of which is our joint collaboration, but this whole history of interacting um, yeah. and presenting these ideas. Whereas some of my other papers didn't get the luxury of 10 years of debate yeah. and discussion before they, get, before they were cemented. And I think that, that, that's a difference that, that matters. I also will have to say that that paper... I'm proud of, in a sense, because I think it's probably one of my one of the more original contributions I have to this debate. Um, to to think to think about the relation of higher order theories and cognitive phenomenology to see to kind of explore that connection. I don't, you know, some of my other papers, you know, as much as I like the deprioritizing paper, I have to admit that Keith came up with it first, and uh, after I had worked it all out, someone wrote on my blog, "Hey, jerk off! This sounds exactly like what this other guy said." And then I went and read it, and I was like, "Holy <laughs> shit! It's exactly the same paper." Yeah, it's, it's identical. We make all the every move for move. He just wrote it better, and he's more clear about it. And I was like, oh, okay. Is this how you met Keith? Is it- yeah, that's how I met Keith. Yeah, well, so, <laughs> so that was a good thing. Like Keith is great. Yeah, Keith is great. Exactly. And then, and then as a result of that, then uh, you know we did our philosophy TV episode, and now yep. uh, we're working on future projects with him, us three together. Yeah. Uh, if, if I understand, exactly. that's still awesome. moving forward. Exactly. It is. I, so, I have recent correspondence with him. Very cool. Very cool. So yeah, no, that's exactly how we met. And you know, and and but and you know, you know, I, we're going on and on here. But it's funny because yeah, I remember I was talking to uh, Chalmers about this one time, and he said, um, "Oh yeah, you know, this argument pops up every once in a while, but still, this guy thought of it first. And he wasn't even talking about Keith. He was talking about I think Sturgeon maybe at the time thought of it first. Um, and I was like, well, you know, thinking of it first is not such a great thing. I, I." It doesn't mean that the argument's not a good argument just because you didn't think of it first. Right. Um, and you know what? Even if I didn't think of it first, I still thought of it. <laughs> and I don't really care who thought of it first. I still, it's still something that I worked out and that I feel very strongly connected to. And so whether someone else thought about it first, I'm going to defend it. And I think defending an argument is more important than thinking of it first or taking credit for yeah. who, who goes in the history books. Although I certainly wouldn't mind if it were the Brown Frankish objection. You know? <laughs> uh, but um, I, I, in some sense, I don't really care who thought of it. I think that this is an important objection that yeah. hasn't been fully appreciated by – and one day we'll have to talk about shambies and, and anti-zombies and stuff Yeah. Um, because I think that you know I love that stuff. Anyway, got to go. All right, man. Well, running out of time. Uh, high fives. Time to keep on slipping. It does. <laughs> Thank you for listening to Space Time Mind. For more info about today's episode, as well as info about our video series and other supplements, check out our website at spacetimemind.com. We'd love to hear from you, so please send us your comments on Twitter at spacetimemind99 or on our blog at spacetimemind.com. And please rate us on iTunes to help spread the word. Until next time, this is Pete Mandic saying, I put my thing down, flip it and reverse it. It's your primitive and wet and yet. It's time.
Bye. 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 Bye.